Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hey everybody, welcome in to another episode of the Can We Please Talk Podcast. I am Mike Leon. And happy that Sarah Palin lost in Alaska. I'm Nick Severi. Oh, Sarah Palin lost in news to me. I, I I just I just found that out right now. It was today years old. We're gonna get into that in a second. Uh on the program today, President Biden has a plan to make America safer again. Mississippi is under a massive water crisis in the biggest city, plus national correspondent over at the Washington Post, Matthew Brown. He joins us to break down all of the legal battles happening with former President Donald Trump. He's been covering a lot of this, specifically things that have been happening and playing out in the state of Georgia. So, Matt, later on in the program, a couple of housekeeping notes before I say hello to my co-host, my partner in crime, friend of over 23 plus years uh, in D.C., CWPT in D.C. live show October 27th. We've announced it. City Tap House. From 5 to 7 p.m., we will be recording our live show there, the private space that they have. You can come on over, food, drinks, come hang out with us and come hear some of the fantastic guests, some that have been on this program, some that haven't, uh, that will be on the program that day, our live show, camera crew and everything, shooting that. And obviously, everything will be available, audio and video on the platforms we're already on. Also, Leon Media Network will be launching a few new projects coming up very soon. One, a streaming docu-series, more on that and details on that in the coming months, and also a potential new podcast for your ears. And for yours truly that you're listening to right now, you love this voice? Uh, some people like it. Some people don't. I get that. But if you want to hear my voice on theanalyst.com, a new series coming back, 
NFL, no, not coming back. It's a new series. Uh, the NFL and college football, we will be doing weekly previews of all the games and actions that are happening over on The Analyst. So if you go to YouTube, type in The Analyst and Stats Perform, and you're able to see our YouTube channel. Subscribe over there. You can watch our first episode, College Football Preview Show, that I did with one of the data scientists and research analysts there over at Stats Perform. Fantastic content. We've got a bunch of different metrics and stats that we use over at theanalyst.com that are powering a lot of what you see play out in the sports sphere from teams, leagues, and broadcasters. So check out that show wherever you can and subscribe to our YouTube channel there, just like you subscribe to our YouTube channel here, or can we please talk? Uh, all of those housekeeping notes aside, now the dashing, Mr. Nicholas Severi. Nick, what is going on, man? This twice a week thing, I really don't have to ask you what's going on. You text me every 10 minutes, so I already know what's going <laughs> on. Then I see you twice a week on camera for like an hour or so. So uh, give me, give the people something. What's, what is new besides, besides your daughter back in school, give me something new. What's new. What's going on in Easton PA? I had to pause there. I'm a dad of two little kids, man. Like, it's not like I'm doing that much exciting stuff right now. Um, repeat. Yeah, exactly. For those of you listening to earlier in the week. Uh, yeah, no, um, get ready for football season. Honestly, <laughs> trying to find some, you know, get some, get ready for some games to come out. Obviously we had some games this past week, uh, in college football. So super excited about that, but yeah, Mike, honestly, you know, just everything we're doing at Leon media network, specifically the work that's coming up for you, uh, with the analyst, that's exciting stuff, more pods for me to listen to. Um, you know, as, as you alluded to, you know, as an organization, we're excited to continue to build content, find other content, uh, put really good stuff out there and good informed stuff and stuff that comes from a, a uh, comes from our hearts, comes from you know what we're passionate about bringing to the world and being able to do that. But as always, I keep bringing this up, as you mentioned, DC, super excited, super excited for the show that we're going to do. Uh, just taking you all behind the scenes. Yeah, Mike and I talked a ton about it, but more importantly, just structurally, how is it going to go? And just a lot of exciting stuff that we're looking to bring to folks in front of a live studio audience. Well, studio, <laughs> it's relatively yeah, speaking, bar. but yeah. a bar, exactly, sure. Right. More importantly, food and drinks there. But um, no, all is good here, man. How are you? How are you? you just, you, you, Mr. CEO, you just took us through all the professional stuff. Yeah. Mike, Leon, the friend I have, but the human being, the good human being that I know, fellow girl dad like me, how are you doing? Oh, I'm 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 doing really I'm doing really well. I am I am very busy work-wise. Obviously, the shows and then obviously I have a day job in addition to that. And then like I mentioned, the stuff that we're shooting over at Leon Media Network. I want to shout out uh Colleen uh Murphy who's our website designer. We're creating a fantastic site coming up soon leonmedianetwork.com so you'll be able to check out not only the podcast, Can We Please Talk, that Nick and I host here, but all of the great work that's coming up under this banner. And then you can obviously shop on there. Uh, a couple of the different advertisers that you've heard throughout different ad reads that we've done on this program, you want to shop and get discounts to certain things that we offer. Fresh roasted coffee, you should go get that coffee. I'm actually drinking two cups a day of that puppy. Uh, so shop local uh, over there, that PA company. They're fantastic. But just busy because keeping track of all of this and especially the docu-series is, as you know, uh, something uh, near and dear to my heart. And uh, just for people out there, a little teaser, it's about the Latino vote and really expanding upon that community. A fifth of this country is Latino as of the 2020 census. So more on that as we get into uh, shooting that. And, and when that comes out, we'll, we'll, we'll let you know about that. Let's get into our first segment, though, here. 
Uh, Nick, this past week, I just mentioned about President Biden. I was playing around. He didn't want to make America safer again. It was safer America is the slogan. But the president was in Pennsylvania speaking in front of a crowd talking about his plan to actually do just that. Right. Make America safer. His safer America plan. Uh, President Biden was talking about this in front of the crowd. Like I mentioned, the plan talks about funding the police and promoting effective prosecution of crimes, affecting families, investing in crime prevention and a fair criminal justice system, and then taking additional common sense steps on guns to keep dangerous firearms out of the hands of dangerous folks. Um, Let's take a listen to a little bit of what the president spoke about uh, over there in Pennsylvania. When it comes to public safety in this nation, the answer is not defund the police. It's fund the police. Fund the police. I've not met a cop who likes a bad cop. There's bad in everything. There's lousy senators. There's lousy presidents. There's lousy doctors. There's lousy lawyers. No, I'm serious. But I don't know any police officer that feels good about the fact that there may be a lousy cop. I'm tired of not giving the kind of help they need. We have to act for those families in Buffalo, Uvalde, Newtown, El Paso, Parkland, Charleston, Las Vegas, Orlando. I've been to every one of those sites. Sit down with those parents. I spent four hours last time. Met with every single one of the parents and families that lost someone. See the looks in their faces. Think about it. Think about the devastation that's occurred. We have to act for all those kids gunned down on our streets every single day that never make the news. We have to act so our kids can learn to read in school instead of learning to duck and cover. President there with some strong language. Uh, I want to, um, boy, that hits me a little bit too because you you and I mentioned our our kids back in school and I haven't had to think about that until this year with with a little one actually going to school. Real quick, I want to give a couple of other notes that are available on whitehouse.gov that you can read about the president's plan. One of the things he mentioned there at the top about funding the police and not defunding, right? Obviously, a a play on the slogan that kind of played out in the summer of 2020. But President Biden's plan puts 100,000 additional officers for effective, accountable community policing on the streets. The plan will provide the investment necessary to recruit, train and support and manage 100,000 additional police officers. And obviously to pay for this, the plan calls on Congress to appropriate close to $11 billion in mandatory funding over five years for the COPS hiring program, supporting state, local, tribal, and territorial officers with high quality training uh, that the president has already signed that into action as a federal, I mean, excuse me, as an executive order. There's a bunch here. You can read it over on whitehouse.gov. We were watching this presser play out, you and I, texting back and forth about this, uh, talking about we wanted to put this in our first segment because obviously we've done a couple different episodes on on a bunch of those things and events that have played out that he mentioned there in the mass shooting statistics that we've given out. We've we've had professors on that have written books about the profiles of mass shooters. We've had reporters from the different areas, people that have covered not only Uvalde, what happened in Buffalo. Um, guns are a huge issue. And the president also said in that speech about gun reform, right? And taking away automatic uh, assault rifles as, as a few of us on this show, there's only two of us, uh, as we have both said, you know, we are in favor of right assault weapons, that type of machinery should not be 
in the hands of somebody like you and I, uh, and the proverbial you and I that's listening to this program as well. Uh, Nick, I want to get some of your takeaways uh, from the president there, some of the things you just heard. The plan itself, too, because he's been going around. This is, I think, maybe his third or fourth. I don't want to say a rally. It's like a town hall type of thing. This was uh, in, in a little bit of a bigger setting, not really in an arena, maybe about two, three thousand people there. But the president obviously outlining this plan and talking about what he wants to do to make America safer. Uh, give me some of your takeaways from not only hearing the president there, but also the, seeing the plan on WhiteHouse.gov. Yeah, I, I was actually a little surprised um, because guns still is a very hotly debated, sadly, hotly debated conversation in the country. Majority of people want some form of sensible gun laws. That's what we see from polling data. But that conversation usually almost goes nowhere, and we've certainly not seen a whole lot of progress. Granted, we have seen a bill finally pass through Congress, but you know, in terms of an assault rifle ban, we haven't seen one of those. I mean, ended basically in, in 1994. So I say surprise because you know the Democrats have had a few good weeks. You know, they have had. You know, we saw the victory in Kansas. You know, we saw just recently. Um, you know, a Democrat is going to step in for the remaining months in this Alaska House seat, you know, from a, uh, a representative who had, you know, recently had passed away. So we're seeing, you know, not exactly a blue wave, but you know, we've seen progress on that side. Guns is not exactly a third rail in American politics, but it's certainly one that does raise the ire for conservatives. So for the president to come forward and put that on the table, it's very akin to what we're seeing play out in Texas. You know, with what uh, Beto O'Rourke has been campaigning on. Um, one thing it's important to note, the president talks about talking to parents, you know, victims, uh, something that we did not see the governor of Texas do. And I think it's important to note that. Um, so I, I was surprised because it is a it's a it's a difficult subject to bring up, but I praise him for doing so. It's funny he does it in a state like Pennsylvania, because obviously Pennsylvania means a lot in this country for this political race coming up. And it's a, a state that we're seeing a continued separation between the Democrats and Republicans, mostly because the Republicans that, that were put up are just not ideal candidates. Right. Take that all you want. That's just what the numbers are telling you. Um, so, yeah, surprise is the word. Now, the other side to this is, you know, talking about funding the police versus defunding the police. We may be hitting a, a turning point with that term because we all remember about a year ago, maybe two years ago. Former President Barack Obama had talked about the challenge of using that term and what it means to people. And to see President Biden come back to that and talk about as a party, or at least where he stands as leader of the party, not going in the direction of defunding the police. And he's not the only Democrat saying that. Go down to Georgia and Stacey Abrams has talked about this too, about making sure that police officers are appropriately compensated to make up for the fact that you're just seeing massive turnover in law enforcement. I'm not going to use this platform to say where I stand on the police. Uh, I will say that there seem there is a sensible opportunity to think about rethinking policing. And when the president talks about having more of a community-based focus for policing, that's certainly something I want to hear more about. Um, the fact that you would require money to come through to come through Congress to help support this at a federal level sounds like a great idea. Again, states will have to decide for themselves how they engage with that. But it, it is an interesting, it's just an important and interesting conversation. Uh, uh, continue to re recognize the need for reform policing. To yep. not necessarily remove it in its entirety and you know pay it nothing, but to recognize that it needs to be better. Yep. 
listen, I'll take it a step further for you. I'll tell you how I feel real quick. Mm -hmm. Okay. Go for it. Uh, Police, the police, we need police, but black lives also matter. The two, you know, can coexist. It's not that hard. Black lives matter. Not more than yours, not less than yours. They matter. And police officers are needed. Okay. Blue lives matter. There's no such thing as blue people. Okay. It's a profession. Okay. Do you want me to wear my director of media products and strategy people uh, matter? Come on, give me a break. So uh, that's a quick take. Uh, you can, you can do both. You can want police and, and hold them accountable because obviously the, the money that comes out of your taxes goes to supporting that, that uh, bureau or law enforcement that's in your community. And obviously you can understand the challenges of blacks and African-Americans in this country. The, the, come on. Let's be sensible, folks. Um, I want to give you uh, one quick thing before we go to the break. The president, this plan would be a $37 billion plan aimed at, like I mentioned, addressing gun violence. And it would be in within the 2023 fiscal budget. But some other things that were clearly outlined, uh, and I mentioned the $13 billion over the next five years for different communities to hire and train police officers, but $3 billion to clear court backlogs and solve murders, according to the White House and a $15 billion grant program for cities and states to use over the next decade to promote approaches to prevent violent crime or identify nonviolent situations that warrant a public health response. The goal of this uh, is alleviating the burden on law enforcement officers. This was according to CBS News. He also said in that speech, too, um, well, I didn't play the clip there, but that, that you know, he we asked police officers to do a lot to be a sociologist, a psychologist you know, to evaluate everything that's happening within an instant. Right. And that's a lot. And so a lot of this money goes to different, different, different programs that can help uh, evidence-based community violence intervention programs is another 5 billion. Uh, so the president said trust between police and the public is vital. Uh, we leave it at that as we go to the break. And when we come back on the other side, fantastic Matthew Brown, uh, the national correspondent over at the Washington post, Guys honed in, laser honed in on everything that's happening in Georgia, but also wrote a great piece about the state of all the investigations that the former president, uh, Donald Trump, is under from the state, from the local levels to even the federal one, obviously, with everything happening with the FBI and DOJ. Matthew Brown, when we come back after the break. Your website should be a marketing asset, not an engineering challenge. Empowering everyone from independent designers to whole marketing teams, Webflow combines the power of HTML, CSS, and JavaScript and places them all in a completely visual canvas. Trusted by companies like Lattice and Discord, it changes the way marketers, designers, and engineers create for the web. Now you can build the site you want without the dev time. Start building for free at webflow.com. This episode is brought to you by KitCaster. KitCaster books you on top podcasts. How do funded startup founders attract prospects and talent? Podcast interviews. How do entrepreneurs with exits find new deals? Podcast interviews. How do C-suite execs differentiate in crowded markets? Podcast interviews. KitCaster books you on top podcasts. Click the link in the show notes for a special offer. Celebrate good conversation. Nick, the presenting sponsor of Can We Please Talk is Fresh Roasted Coffee. Since 2009, this Pennsylvania company has been making their passion of bringing you gourmet coffees from all over the world, roasted fresh to order. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. 
You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. In eco-friendly smart roasters, they're committed to quality, service, integrity, approachability, and sustainability. I know you've ordered a few packs there you're going to tell the people because we all know what a big coffee snob you are i live the k-cup life and i've ordered some of the colombian roast and the breakfast blend it's delicious your take sir on fresh roasted coffee a pennsylvania-based company for the man in eastern pennsylvania who drinks coffee regularly yeah mike that's right you know shop local right (laughs) as always uh yeah i just most recently bought the flavored coffee set which is six different incredible flavors that's on its way getting shipped i had that just ground you know for when it gets here mike one of my favorite parts is that they allow you to take a not allow what am i talking about here they give you a quiz just to get a sense of your taste you know so i took that quiz i got recommended sumatra you know, just a great single origin coffee. But in addition to that, Mike, they have a great section, just the learn section. If you go to their website, freshroastedcoffee.com, there's a just on when you click down, there's a learn section. For those of you who are not necessarily in the coffee game as deep as Mike and I are, you can learn everything from how to use your French press, how to use a Chemex. So they're, they're not just selling you coffee and tea, by the way, something very important. You know, a lot of places try to separate these two ancient beverages, not fresh, fresh roasted coffee. So they have a huge variety of tea as well. My wife's more of a tea drinker than a coffee drinker. So I'm going to be hooking her up, but Mike, it's an awesome company. So many things available on the website. Um, And I think that those who are listeners of the show can benefit from listening to us and purchasing from there, if I'm correct. That's right. Because all you got to do right now, if you're in our show notes page or whatever audio podcast platform you're listening to us, you click the link that's available right there. That link will have a special promo code discount applied to whatever you buy from freshroastedcoffee.com. Head to that link in our show notes page and get in on some of this great tasting coffee today. All right, Matt Brown is a fantastic national correspondent over at the Washington Post. This man is going to educate us on everything that's happening with former President Trump, specifically in the state of Georgia. And he joins us here on the show. Matt, Mike and Leon, Nick Savary, thank you so much for hopping on the podcast with us. Thanks, guys. Great to be here. Matt, I want to ask you at the top, um, because in prepping to have you on the program, I was reading some of your articles, obviously, of everything that's happened in Georgia. We're going to get that in a second. But a few weeks back, you and a couple of your colleagues wrote this article. <laughs> the header was funny. Uh, the status of key investigations involving Donald Trump. From local, state, and now federal investigations, this is happening across multiple agencies with the former president that he's involved in legal battles. Can you summarize 30,000 foot view 
for our audience where we are with some of these investigations at a real high level for our audience? Yeah, absolutely. So so the thing to understand about a lot of the different Trump investigations going on is I basically put them into mm, two buckets here. One bucket that I would say would be the investigations that you're looking at with Trump, where he was because he was president and because he was a very high profile public figure who he'd been a celebrity for obviously decades in American life and everything, but not everyone was necessarily scrutinizing his businesses, his charitable contributions and just everything that he'd been doing in that time. But then obviously once you become president and you have a lot more consequence in, in American life than, than even you did as, as the host of Celebrity Apprentice, you, that's when you start to get you know local district attorneys, attorney generals of states and, and just, and just it, investigators, prosecutors who are going to be interested in the, the, the conduct of these businesses and how they were actually conducting themselves. So these are the investigations that you've seen in, for instance, Washington, D.C., where the Trump Organization has had um, some operations, and also New York, where, where, where Trump is obviously from, where these investigations have been scrutinizing his business practices, whether it's at the Manhattan District Attorney or the New York Attorney General, basically saying, what has actually been going on here with your with you, with you your business properties, your valuations? And, and that could lead to seeing potentially the Trump organization or Trump's other enterprises being um, fined or, or facing other liabilities for things like tax fraud or tax avoidance or, you know, distortion evaluation of properties and everything. So that's that's that category that, that because Trump basically became president and people were paying a little bit more attention to the, all of his many assets in the U.S. and around the world, folks basically said, well, well, actually, what is what is going on here with with all of these things now that they're so much more high profile and that they're actually entangled, not just with, you know, his own personal brand and everything, but also with just the actual like apparatus of the federal government and the prestige of the White House. The second category of things that we're looking at are the more criminal, serious things going on here, which is that's with the Department of Justice's investigations into the, the improper taking of documents at Mar-a-Lago and whether or not he had um, human classified intelligence, um, which is basically just information that spies had acquired for the United States. Um, whether he'd been properly taken documents that weren't supposedly classified. This is the dispute that we've been seeing in the past couple of weeks. And then also things like, you know, what, what was his involvement with January 6th? And what was his involvement at the federal level with attempting to overturn America's elections and 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 contribute to an insurrection that, that saw the Capitol stormed by, you know, a mob of his supporters? And, and that actually culminates to what I've been paying most attention to, as you said in my reporting, which has been what's going on down here in Georgia, where which actually faces potentially the most significant um, criminal investigation into Trump and his allies, which is the efforts to overturn or affect or delay the election results here in Georgia, where Trump was um, clearly had pressured, as we reported at the Washington Post and many others elsewhere did as well, that, that he directly pressured the Secretary of State, the governor, state legislatures, and, and many conservative activists and members of his um, inner circle had, had openly um, spread conspiracy theories and misinformation about Georgia's elections and, and caused a lot of chaos down here about what was actually going on in Georgia. And that process, that that effort, that pressure campaign has now drawn the attention of Atlanta's district attorney, as, as well as, as many, um, you know, other investigative bodies down here in Georgia, as well as, um, you know, from outside of the state, even as well as, as, as we've seen in recent weeks. So, so those are the, the two buckets there, the things that, that are improper, um, but might be even civil in nature on, on the Trump organization side, and then the things that are genuinely criminal and much have much more to do with his political ambitions and his, and his efforts to overturn the 2020 election that present much more, you know, 
present and dangerous, you know, criminal um, potential consequences for Trump should they come to um, a full prosecution. Matt, we had on a, a former federal prosecutor recently, uh, and we had listed for him just the very the various legal battles that the former president is taking on. And we asked him, what's the one that if you're a lawyer for you know Trump that should be keeping you up at night? And he pointed to Georgia. Matt, just take us through, because we're hearing, obviously, a lot of names that are being mentioned. Obviously, Lindsey Graham, former president, Rudy Giuliani, you know, folks that are being you know, either asked to testify or their names are being brought up in this trial. What A, what's at stake for the former president, but also B, why is this case is something we should all be paying more attention to nationally? And what is, um, you know, what's on the line for the former president? Right, definitely. So one thing to just give a little bit of context here about Georgia is that obviously Georgia has been no stranger for a very long time for, um, you know, debates about voting, debates about election fraud, you know, debates over, you know, who's tampering the ballot to us, access to ballots. Like, you know, this this was the state that, you know, had had some of the the most consequential, um, you know, fights over voting rights during the civil rights movement and, and debates over voter fraud and who has access to the ballot has has been, you know, very significant there um, here ever since. And, and I bring that up to say that that is as a consequence of that history, Georgia has exceptionally stringent laws um, with criminal consequences for delaying the administration of elections and um, pressuring election officials around elections and everything. So uh, other states have you know, stringent regulations around this, but, but Georgia's laws are, are very, very explicit about that you can face very steep criminal consequences for you know, interfering with elections, pressuring people to interfere with elections. And then separately, because Georgia also has you know, very strong um, anti-racketeering laws on the books as well that have been used very liberally in this state to, to prosecute gangs, to prosecute human trafficking here in Atlanta, that has also been... Um, novelly use actually even to prosecute teachers, Georgia's laws are just very, very set and very, very ripe for a case like this, where there was a coordinated conspiracy by Trump and his allies, potentially, to overturn the results of the 2020 election. So, so whereas you saw this happen all across the country, locally, it's very clear under Georgia law that, that we could have seen at least three laws, as I just outlined. Um, it's criminal for a, a, a a person to delay the administration of election, even if they didn't actually delay the election successfully, it's it or it's actually just not allowed for them to be pressuring people to be delaying that actual process. That itself is illegal down here. Number two, it's illegal to solicit people to commit election fraud down here. Now that gets into like, you know, the intent of a person's mind and whether or not they actually really meant to commit election fraud. Um, and that's when you get into the questions around when Trump was calling Brad Raffensperger and he was saying, I I just want you to find 11,000 votes. When Lindsey Graham was calling Brad Raffensperger twice, and said, I think that, you know, like there's just got to be something with your absentee ballot policies. Well, that's when you get into questions around what was their intent? What were they really thinking about when it comes to these questions? When Rudy Giuliani was testifying to the Georgia State Legislature that he had ironclad evidence of voter fraud at the State Farm Arena here in Atlanta, was he was he sure that that was a lie and that he really didn't think that that was true and that he's just saying that to um, muddy the waters, delay the election? That might not matter for the first count that I brought up, but it would the much more stringent um, second count that would be far more serious, you do actually have to get into whether or not a person really understood that what they were saying was not true or not. 
And then the third part, which is a bit novel here, that the district attorney Fannie Willis has been using in this case has been the RICO laws here in Georgia that, that say that because the Trump organization, the Trump White House, the Trump campaign were, were coordinating here to potentially delay or overturn the results of the election, as the district attorney is arguing, that itself could be a very, very stringent criminal um, liability here, which is why you've seen, you know, just today, John Eastman, who was the lawyer who gave the six page memo that argued that Mike Pence was able to contest the election results on January 6th, why a lot of other members of Trump's legal team, like Kenneth Chesabro, Jenna Ellis, uh, Jackie Pick Deason, uh, Cleta Mitchell, why all of them were also subpoenaed in this because they were potentially part of a much broader conspiracy. And that seems to be the argument that this district attorney and her special grand jury are, are zeroing in on, especially as we've come to the end of the summer and see who they're really like going after here at this point. Matt, just to follow up to that, you just mentioned a couple of examples of members of Trump's team that have been directly in contact with the state. You know, we're all familiar with transcript, like what the former president had said. On face value, does that seem to be the the key piece of evidence that the prosecution is trying to bring to bear or just basically putting out there as reason enough to say that there's a violation of laws? And at the same time, is simply making that request, as we've seen done by multiple people on Trump's team. Is that enough to be in violation of the law? So what we've heard, so the thing that started this entire investigation and District Attorney Willis was very clear about that was the Washington Post report that that found um, the hour long call of Trump pressuring Brad Raffensperger to, um, you know, potentially overturn the election or, quote unquote, find votes for Trump. That that is what she explicitly said when she launched this investigation before the special grand jury, like right after January 6th and January 2021. That's what she said. I'm interested in now investigating. So given that that's the origin of it, it's it's seems likely and logical that 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 she believes that laws were clearly broken there that said though like everything that we've learned this summer since the special grand jury has been seated and since she's been trying to subpoena and and harangue and get a lot of these other um, members of trump world um people like um governor brian kemp who were potentially victims of this plot um those people though shows that they have really expanded this. Like, like for instance, one thing that I think has been interesting is the fact that the, the slate of GOP alternate electors who were subpoenaed in um, this um, you know, criminal probe, they were told that they were targets of the investigation, which isn't saying that we're going to necessarily bring prosecution against you, but it's saying that we think we have enough evidence to think that you all broke laws. The fact that they that Willis brought that information to the alternate slate of electors who directly were not, we, we they, to our knowledge in, in public reporting, didn't necessarily also pressure people behind the scenes. But but the fact that Willis does think that something could have happened there or that or that she has sufficient enough information to show that that they could have also broken laws either by attempting to forge and certify, you know, a fake slate of electors on in, De- in December 2020, or by thereby, you know, working behind the scenes with things that we don't know that are publicly available at the moment. It shows that she thinks that this is a much broader conspiracy than just what we publicly knew at the time in, in January and um, in January 2021, which was, I just think it's like important also to step back and just remember that this was a really crazy time. A lot of things were happening in the country. Um, December 2020 was it was just every single day that like, you know, some other crazy text was coming out or, or you know, someone was muddying the waters here and then something was coming out of Wisconsin, something was going on in Arizona. You know, there was a lot of people were saying a lot of things that are that seemed very out of pocket and and not properly organized. And I think that we were very blinded about that in the moment to the fact that 
potentially laws could have been broken here. And it's only after the fact, nearly two years later, as we look back at everything that was said, everything that was done, everything that was scrambled to be executed, um, in Trump's orbit, that we realize how coordinated this conspiracy was at times, and then also how potentially laws could have been broken here, which is basically what in a lot of these um, investigations from the local to the federal level, that's the thing that people are really just trying to untangle here with the entire Jan 6 story. You know, Matt, I want to ask you, um, staying in Georgia, where, where, where you are and covering all the politics that you are, you wrote an article about, you know, uh, Governor Kemp right now not having to testify until after the election. Obviously, he's got a big election this fall against Stacey Abram. Uh, can you take our audience a little bit inside uh, the decision to delay Governor Kemp after? And and what are you also hearing from Georgia voters about his potential uh, you know, testifying uh, during this process. Does that affect any voters one way or the other? Yeah, so Brian Kemp was one of the first people who Willis definitely seemed like she wanted to hear from, given that we know that, that Trump and his allies and people in Kemp's orbit even had been saying, you need to hold a special session, you need to at least investigate this, you need to show that you're on the the, pre the president's side in this in this quest to to win the, the 2020 election, even after it had been, Joe Biden had been declared the victor. So because of that, we've been seeing since the special grand jury, which has subpoena power, had been seated in May of this year, we'd thought that at some point Kemp was going going to testify before the grand jury, just like, you know, Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger and Attorney General Chris Carr, who were both Republicans and who'd both also been pressured by Trump, they would all, they, they, we assumed that Kemp was going to be like them and also appear here. Willis had allowed Kemp to, you know, delay his testimony during the primary, which had been a very fraught time in the GOP where, you know, former Senator David Perdue had been clearly attacking Kemp over not taking action. So the, the issue at hand in the special grand jury had actually been the, the question of the, the GOP primary, like that had been what Kemp was fighting over. So Willis said, all right, fine. Like I will, I will delay your testimony to not interfere in the politics of this. And that is, that is something that she did of her own, um, of, agreed of her own volition in the case. Afterwards, though, we thought that Kemp was going to provide sworn testimony or some kind of statement or some kind of video interview to the special grand jury in late July. That uh, it came out in this month that actually never happened and that Kemp's lawyers and the investigators in the district attorney's office had had a serious breakdown of communication and they were, you know, very much not. Um, you know, communicating properly. Kemp's lawyers basically wanted there to be certain protections around what could be asked of Kemp, and they didn't want anything to leak out because they were very scared of that potentially happening. Willis's um, attorneys said basically, no, like we need to be able to ask you about any and everything. And we don't care that you've given us over a whole bunch of documents, most of which are basically useless to us in this investigation. We really want to ask you directly some questions about what Trump was likely pressuring you to. That seems to be the line of inquiry that they were following. We knew we know all of this from from emails and, and, and deposition that, that Kemp's um, lawyers actually provided to the court, which showed some really explosive language there. It, it showed to me that Kemp is very, very nervous about his reelection prospects um, and more or more specifically how this case can interact with his reelection prospects. He has been very clearly marketing himself as a strident and unapologetic, um, you know, Georgia conservative, but he's just not in necessarily Trump's wing of the party, but he has passed, you know, significant amounts of, you know, conservative policy in the state over the past couple of years. Um, you know, he passed a, a permitless carry bill, which means that you can, you don't need a permit anymore to carry a firearm in Georgia. He's, you know, cut taxes here. He has, you know, targeted, 
you know, the teaching of, you know, race and history in history classes in Georgia has, you know, expanded, um, you know, has, you know, expanded religious liberties in the state, the past to, you know, abortion ban. This is a very, very conservative governor. He is scared, though, that in a state that has like such thin margins for, you know, re-election here, that any group, that any group of, you know, Trump supporters who are then reminded that Trump does not like Kemp and Trump doesn't want Kemp to win again. He's terrified that anything that could possibly create the optics of that would would make it so that that he would not win re-election. That that seems to have been basically the argument that his lawyers were making, where they said, first, they've made the argument that they have sovereign immunity and that that Kemp is legally protected from having to testify because he is the sovereign legally in the state. That didn't necessarily really fly with McBurney, who basically said, well, that doesn't really make sense um, in the context of this case, especially because sovereign immunity usually only applies to civil cases. And this is definitely a criminal investigation. And and, and the, in the courtroom, there was a bit of fireworks about this back and forth over what actually power the special grand jury has. Their second argument also didn't really fly because it was basically saying that Kemp has executive privilege, which McBurney, the judge who oversees the case, pointed out as a federal power that the president normally only has. And he said, are you trying to say that somewhere in the Georgia constitution, we also give you executive privilege powers? And they had to concede, no, that's not the case. So what McBurney basically said is, I don't take your first two arguments that there is any legal reason why you shouldn't be able why you shouldn't be able to testify in this and why Willis's attorney shouldn't be able to hear from you. What he did take seriously was their third argument, which is that because of the political optics of this, because of the political explosive nature of this, there's no reason why he can't testify until after the election just because of the quote political impact. He didn't really take seriously any of Kemp's lawyer's arguments that the investigation was somehow political itself or that Willis was, you know, in the tank for Stacey Abrams, but he did take seriously the idea that the optics of this case are already so fraught and inherently political that he didn't want to disrupt the political processes as they were taking out. He's He's been, and I want to note that the judge who's been overseeing this has been very, very um, judicious in saying that I don't even want anything that like smells remotely political touching this case. So this is very, very in line with some other past rulings that we've seen throughout the summer from him. That case seems to somewhat frustrate, you know, District Attorney Willis. She said this week that she believes that people who have information in the investigation should be, um, should testify, which seemed to be a way of her saying, I think that he should testify now, but I'll take him testifying after the investigation. Um, but for Kemp, it's already become a political situation now. Like Stacey Abrams has been, you know, posting, you know, attack ads on Kemp, basically implying that he has something to hide because he doesn't want to testify in this anymore, which honestly actually gets the legal question entirely backwards. Kemp was being pressured by Trump to to overturn the election and he didn't. And the optics of that for Kemp are very politically bad for him in a base, in a conservative base that's still very loyal to Trump. The issue for Trump, for the issue for Kemp um, now though, is that he might honestly, for some swing voters, then look like he's being more loyal to Trump than they'd be comfortable with. And that's been something that that I've been exploring down here and trying to figure out who are the people who could actually be moved by this case. It's a relatively small number of people, but in a state that where only a couple thousand votes can actually flip an entire election, the, the people, the question of is Kemp, you know, a strong ally of Donald Trump, or is he avoiding him? Honestly, that could move equal numbers of people in either direction. And it's going to be really interesting to to see which one eventually wins out through the other all the rest of the noise of what's going on in this governor's race now you can make an argument that the the segment of people you're talking about is seemingly a micro a microcosm of what we're seeing in other parts of the country you know between the senate race with ron johnson wisconsin uh, i live in pennsylvania so we're seeing it being played out between the race between john fetterman and doc and dr oz um 
Matt, just expanding on that, you know, when you think of that margin for votes, uh, and George is especially fascinating because you've got obviously Herschel Walker, you know, taking on um, the incumbent, you know, Reverend Raphael Warnock. How do you expand, just expand on that margin and where does the temperature seem to be swinging for folks who either are just sort of either where they are with the Trump noise, but also what seems to be a more united and a clear message coming in from Democrats, especially over the last month and what we're seeing play out in elections across the country? Yeah, so if the polls are to be believed, I think that we're seeing an interesting split here in Georgia, where, where like I said, um, you know, Kemp is a very conservative governor. He's also, in my opinion, very, very Georgia. Like this is a guy who his he's been a conservative. Um, he was he was essentially part of I, some of his history in the state is that he was part of this wing of um, this wave of young conservative. Um, you know, lawmakers who entered the Georgia state legislature back in the 2000s. And that was before he became secretary of state and then governor. So he's been a very known quantity in the state for a very long time. He's championed very conservative policies for a very long time. And I think that that's what actually helped him, you know, survive just these relentless attacks from Trump and his allies and and lead him to basically being, you know, I'm I'm going to be able to weather this and show that it doesn't really, I'm the real deal basically. And that I'm I'm not going to, you, you can go Reno hunting somewhere else. Like, I, I'm the I'm the real deal conservative down here, and I'm a, I'm a true son of Georgia, which is when I go around the state and I really talk to people in a lot of you know these communities that usually vote heavily Republican. That's what people will basically say. Well, they'll say I think something happened in the 2020 election. I'm mad at Kemp about that. I'm mad at Raffensperger about that. But they are good men, and I I will still support them. Which is why I think that that in that context especially for incumbents, you are seeing Raffensperger and Kemp still up in the polls, even as the environment is improved for Democrats. That is not the same true, that is not the same thing that's happening for Herschel Walker, who is down in the polls against Raphael Warnock. Um, he's also a challenger, and this seems to be, you know, shaping up to be just like a not very good year for challengers here in Georgia. But he, him challenging um, Raphael Warnock, who's really tried to show that he is a representative for all of Georgia, that he is championing you know, policies that are going to benefit Georgians no matter what part of the state they're in, which is a very important issue in a state that has such regional inequality like Georgia. That has been, you know, it's he's and he's also just like, I mean, to be honest, like he's had a ton of just crazy gaffes where he's his he's said things that haven't haven't made sense to people. There's a lot of attack ads that have been very damaging to him here in the state. So while, you know, the core Trump base here in the state has might be a little turned off by, you know, Kemp not necessarily going with Trump all the time, they're eventually going to come home, it seems. That same base, though, while they're really, really riled up by Herschel Walker, while they're really, really wild up by some other folks on the ticket like Burt Jones, they're not necessarily a big enough coalition to go and win the rest of the state. A lot of people in Metro Atlanta, a lot of people in, you know, some of the other like cities in the state, like, you know, Columbus and Augusta around Savannah, those those folks who are usually amenable to being able to vote conservative, they're looking at the current state of the, the GOP and they're saying, I don't know that this is my party. Like I, I'm a I'm a strident Georgia conservative, but I don't feel like this Trump um movement is really representing me or that I feel that comfortable with it. And like I said, Georgia is, is, it is emblematic of our political divides in this country right now, both on, you know, political, on the geography, on the demographics. And as a result of that, it's a super polarized state. Like no matter who wins these elections, it's going to be incredibly close. And as a result of that, I think it's really important to, to note that, that these small margins of, of people who say, I might, you know, stick by camp um, as the polls are currently showing, 
they might they might also be able to say i also have thought that Raphael warnock did you know a decent enough job you know in the senate i i didn't turn out for kelly loffler david purdue the first time and i might be be willing to you know give Raphael warnock a, a, another chance in everything um on the point of stacy abrams and the rest of the challengers on the democratic side their their situation has definitely improved over the past couple of weeks as we've seen for instance the effects of the overturning of roe versus wade um the motivation of the democratic base and, and a lot of passing of legislation by President Biden in Congress, um, that has shown that there is increased movement and, organiz and organizing here. And, and as someone who covers voting rights and election administration, I also do have to say that the voter registration in Georgia right now is potentially showing things that the polls aren't picking up. Like the these campaigns are going into places and registering people who might not normally vote. We're seeing a huge um, shift in the number of women who are getting registered to vote. And that, that gender gap in Georgia could just be enough to swing the election, especially given that we know that women are much more democratic than men at the moment in the country. So, so those certain factors might be things that the polls aren't necessarily picking up at the moment. But but the, the current archetypal voter in Georgia seems to be, um, this archetypal swing voter, I mean, seems to be a you know person who probably lives in Metro Atlanta, who you know could be amenable to you know voting for some of the conservative incumbents. They say, well, you haven't driven the state into the ground, at least from my perspective. Um, and I am, but I'm also going to stick by at the federal level with my Democratic congressman and my Democratic senator. That seems to be where we're basically trending for in Georgia at the moment. But there is still a lot of time before November, and as I've said, people are organizing on the ground here very aggressively. It's going to be interesting to see how all of this plays out, not only in your state, but in a bunch of different races. I'm in the state of Florida, and we're going to see what happens in the governor's race here with Governor DeSantis and Charlie Chris. Uh, Matthew Brown is a fantastic national correspondent over at the Washington Post. He obviously knows everything about the state of Georgia. So if you're informed, uh, follow him on social media. Anything related to the state of Georgia, he's got you covered on that front. Matt, I can't thank you enough for coming on the program today. Continued success to you, sir, and please stay safe. Appreciate y'all. Thanks. Nick, today's sponsor of the podcast is 800 Florals. Nick, when was the last time you bought your your wife, your beautiful wife, Laura? When was the last time you bought her flowers? No, it's not recent enough, man. Well, see, there we go. Why, why? And how come? Let's let's get into that. Forget the copy for a second. How come? <laughs> I mean, I buy all kinds of different gifts. Um, so flowers sometimes slips my mind. Uh, you know, we do have a rose bush in the back. So I'm like, you know, we got some pretty flowers coming in, but I don't make that intentional pursuit of it, though. Okay. I, I, I'm, I'm looking to you for ideas, though, of okay. where to go get them. Well, I have one. And folks, you should not copy Nick Zuberi. You should be getting flowers for that special somebody that you love. And let me tell you a little bit about 800 Florals. There are roughly 20,000 professional florists in North America that design and deliver fresh flowers on a daily basis. 1-800-Florals is one of those. They've been around for more than 20 years. You can shop products occasions check out flower delivery you can even arrange a thoughtful gift of monthly flowers for that special someone you heard that nick so you can set on auto subscribe here and get monthly flowers delivered to laura's job and you'll be thought of highly over there now uh all you got to do is head to our show notes page right now to find out more about 800 florals there's a link in our show notes page it'll take you right to them use that link and you're going to get a special discount when you check out and buy those fresh flowers. Check out 800florals.com today. All right, our thank yous there to Matt Brown, national correspondent over at the Washington Post. Follow him on social media, IG and Twitter. Um, he's done a great job. I know we've talked about this with supporting local journalism. I know the Washington Post is a national publication. Some of the, the writers that we've had on have been from national publications, but 
Um, they have people that are covering this at the local level, right? Matt's in the state of Georgia. He resides there. You just heard he's working on some pieces to talk about voter turnout, registration. He deals a lot with the election integrity stuff. Like, I mean, there's some, this is what Nick has alluded to before on the show, and I'm going to allude to it right now. You know, understanding what's happening locally uh, for you, reading, you live in the state of Georgia right now, you live in Athens, you live in Columbus, like you mentioned, Savannah, wherever it is without, within the state, you need to understand certain things that are happening, not only in your district, but happening at the state level, right? Who's representing you from the House of Representatives, from the senator, and then up to what's happening with the governor's race. Uh, I thought there was some great stuff there, just quickly on on some of the stuff that Matt touched on before we head into our final segment. Yeah, you know, one of the things that really stands out is Matt explains that you know for voters, yeah, there's obviously party affiliation, but it also seems to be about different you know different needs being expressed. You know, at the Senate level, what potentially would drive people to to continue to support the incumbent, you know, Raphael Warnock, uh, and not so much the the challenger, you know, and, and Herschel Walker. Uh, but at the same time, with the governor's race, Mike, you have a chance. There's a chance that there are people who would vote for Governor Kemp, but also vote for Raphael Warnock, just the way Matt was breaking it down. And that can make your head hurt a little bit. But we've yeah. seen that. You know, We've seen states that lean to the Democrats, Maryland being a good example with Larry Hogan as the current governor. And, and Matt just explained. And as we talked about, Georgia, it feels like a microcosm for the rest of the, for many places in the country where suburban voters were all figuring out which direction are they going to go. So and as you said to Matt, like, yeah, this is an episode like so many sit back, maybe play this back at half speed, sort of take this all in um, and then just read more about the state. Atlantic Journal Constitution, fantastic paper, Washington Post. Uh, obviously, we talk about national papers all here, here all the time. Great paper as well. Um, but yeah, it's a lot of great, just helpful pieces from Matt. No, really good stuff. And and you're right about that, too. Like the makeup of Republican governor, your senators or Democrats, you know, the House of Representative members. Maybe there's one that's Republican, one that's Democrat. We're trying to see. We're seeing that tend, uh, trend a little bit. Excuse me. Happening nationally. Uh, let's talk into something that's obviously at a local level affecting a lot of people and has recently made the national headlines. If you don't know what we're talking about uh, this past Tuesday, Jackson, Mississippi, the state's capital uh, there in the state of Mississippi is having a huge issue and a state of emergency has been declared because there isn't safe drinking water for residents. Take a listen to this. We want to begin with a humanitarian crisis that's unfolding here at a major city in America as a state of emergency is declared in Jackson, Mississippi. The governor warning the capital's nearly 200,000 residents to not drink the water. The National Guard has been called in to help get bottled water to those in need. And it's not just drinking water. Low water pressure means people are unable to shower or flush their toilets. The problems at the water treatment plant came after days of heavy rains resulted in a swollen Pearl River. So that was from obviously CBS News. If you heard Nora O'Donnell's voice there, if you recognize her, thank you to her uh, and then the good folks at CBS News for reporting on this. But days of torrential rain in August flooded the Mississippi's Pearl River and the Ross B. Barnett Reservoir, a 33,000 acre lake that provides water to Jackson. Before that water makes it into homes, obviously, it passes through this treatment plant, the Curtis treatment plant. And that's where the issues have have started to happen. For weeks now, the main pumps at the Curtis plant, the city's largest facility, has been out of service, and the plant has been relying instead on weaker backup pumps. You read some of this over on Vox, V-O-X.com. Uh, they, they have a great article on it. But also 
supporting, we were talking about local journalism here at a nonprofit level. MississippiToday.org has a great piece about why Jackson's water system is broken. And it's actually from 2021. This was issues that have been brought to the attention of people since March of 2021. This has been a crisis a year in the making since July, well before the floods and pump failures. The city has been under a boil water notice after the state health department detected levels of, of turbidity or cloudiness that violated state, state health regulations. These kinds of notices are incredible, incredibly common in Jackson and the health regulators have issued several of them in the last couple of years alone. Again, this is all according to everything that's happened in Vox, um, uh, or excuse me, has played out in the Vox article. Um, there is a lot to digest here, but the big thing that I wanted to impart is 80% of the city's residents are, are African-American. Um, so you have a community of black and, and some brown that are mixed in there that make up a large swath of the population. And this is affecting over 150,000 residents right now. And some people are looking at this as a racial issue in nature, similar to what we've seen play out in Flint, Michigan, right? Uh, how do we get water to these people? Running water, this is affecting schools. People can't take showers, low water pressure, like they mentioned there in the piece. Um, Nick, some of your takeaways, you've seen this now, uh, the last couple of days, we, we watched Governor Reeves' press conference, we were texting about it. Um, we've seen, obviously, the subsequent articles, state state uh, health officials going to a couple different outlets to tell people what they can do, how this all kind of started. These issues tend to happen. Uh, we've seen it play out, obviously, in New Orleans, when what happened after Katrina. We've seen this now what happened in Jackson, Mississippi. I mentioned Flint, Michigan. There's a huge crisis and it tends to affect communities of color more than it does uh, white white folks. And again, those are just statistics based on the couple of cities that I've mentioned there where it's happened. Uh, give me some of your takeaways about the the water crisis that's happening in Mississippi. You know, water access to water is emblematic of when you have a city or town you know, with a crumbling infrastructure. And Mike, I think, Mike, you hit the nail on the head. Like with every city in any state or any locality, you ask yourself, you know, what what cities or towns seem to have the least amount of issues with, you know, with up to date plumbing and mechanisms and pieces like that. I mean, the, I, I again, I work in the education sector, so when I think about schools in you know wealthier suburban, predominantly white neighborhoods, you don't run into those same issues. Perfect example: charter school I worked at in the Bronx. Uh, this is back in probably maybe like 10 years ago. At one point, there was no access to water, you know, water in the in the school building itself. And this was a former public school that a charter school had taken over. You know, the water at that point had traces of lead in it. Immediately, no one's drinking the water. Teachers bring their bottled water in. They're shipping in bottles of water um, that the, you know, the, the head of the network had, you know, started purchasing. And Mike, that school was well over 90%, you know, black and, and Latino students. And it's it's that perfect example of like this is what you see in a in a just a under resourced area because what I just described you're not going to see that in a predominantly white suburb that's just not going to happen and in isolation you recognize well why is that right and it follow the money like for fans of the wire like you all know this this is always a thing that we always see so you know we're seeing what happens in Jackson Mississippi and I'm glad you brought up Flint folks. In the United States of America, there are places right now, Newark being on this list, that drinkable water is not a given. You know, for everything we argue about politically in this country, 
we like to think that as a country, we have the infrastructure available, that something is what feels like a right of having accessible, clean water should be there. And that's not true for so many communities. And Jackson being just the newest newest member of that list, sadly. Mike, you were talking about ways to support one place I'm going to direct folks to is the Mississippi Food Network, you know, on their website, uh, donate.msfoodnet.org. First thing you're going to see is the opportunity to give money. That's one of the most important things you can do to help provide fresh water to local families. When we're talking about water in the case of Jackson, Mississippi, what we're talking about is not having access. You know, there are folks who are trying to go get access to bottles of water in order to brush their teeth, in order to bathe, in order to cook. It's not a case of necessarily water being tainted, but just water is just not there. And that's a massive problem for sports fans. Jackson State University, obviously, we've been all being paying attention to that particular uh, historically black college university coached by Deion Sanders. Players right there are being asked to move into hotels just to have access to water. And there's a whole conversation we can have there about college athletes having ba- better access to facilities than um, non-athlete, non-athletic citizens in the city, but just the n- numerous examples of what we're seeing folks dealing with there. So once again, donate.msfoodnet.org is a yeah. great place. There are others, of course, uh, but whatever we can all do. Um, Micah, the other thing I also bring up too is the recent infrastructure bill that passed under the Biden administration. There is a section that talks about, I'm going to bring this up for a moment, um, that talks about access to clean water. It's in the bill. The problem is that while it's in the bill, there's money directed toward it. You know, we're rec- so at a federal level, we recognize that there's a need to maintain clean water, obviously. But you're seeing cities like Jackson that are currently in the thick of this problem. So for everything that's happening at the congressional level, money's got to get sent down there. The governor of Mississippi obviously is now declared a state of emergency. So hopefully, FEMA and other resources can be directed to them. But yeah, all we can do right now is just support in every way we can the citizens of Jackson. Yeah, we're going to put in our show notes uh, not only the link that Nick mentioned, another link too, on how you can help donate uh, to this city and the crisis that's happening there. The city's, you know, obviously racing to repair the water treatment plant. They've installed a, a rented emergency water pump. You mentioned about Governor Reeves declaring a state of emergency. The National Guard has been deployed. President Biden declared an emergency, obviously, for the for Mississippi, which will help funnel federal money into jackson uh, more on the crisis that's happening down there in the coming weeks well i will devote some more coverage to that um i thank you again to matthew brown from the washington post check out all of his work on washingtonpost.com for this show for com video youtube.com you want to watch all of the interviews that we've done on this program head over to our youtube channel type in can we please talk check out all the fantastic work our producer tim Meehan has been doing cutting content for you guys and gals out there. Audio podcast platforms, you know them by now, Apple, Spotify, Google. Please leave us a five-star review and comment whenever you can. And also shout out to Acast, our hosting platform. We cannot do it without them. And just like I say every episode, and I mean it from the bottom of my heart, I can't thank each and every one of you for listening to this program. The feedback that we get, good, bad, or indifferent, has been fantastic. As always, I am Mike Leon. Thinking about the folks in Jackson again help out with what you can send water send money uh just helping those folks out i'm nick severi we'll see everybody next time